Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one righteous page of Talmud each day. And today's page, Sota 22, is ripped from the headlines. Have a listen. Rav Yosef Barhama says that Rav Sheshit says, a conniving wicked person is one who persuades others with his ways, convincing others to mimic his seemingly righteous behavior in order to hide his faults. Rabbi Zarika says that Rav Khuna says, a conniving wicked person is one who is lenient in the halakha for himself and strict for others. Ula says, this is one who read the written Torah and learned the Mishnah but did not serve Torah scholars in order to learn the reasoning behind the halachot. Since he believes himself knowledgeable, he issues halachic rulings, but due to his lack of understanding, he rules erroneously and is therefore considered wicked. His cunning is in his public display of knowledge, which misleads others into considering him a true Torah scholar. You could almost imagine this conversation taking place on Twitter, right? I mean, hey man, you don't really care about X or Y or Z, you're just virtue signaling. Hey man, you're lenient for yourself, but strict when it comes to your opponents. Hey man, don't try to fool anyone by pretending to be an expert. We all see your faults. It's tense and ugly stuff. And everywhere you look these days, it seems that there's more and more and more of it. We accuse each other of bad motives, of bad faith. We're so quick to see those who think differently from us as wicked. We go as far as to decree that if so-and-so doesn't agree with us, he can't be our rabbi or our teacher or even our friend. The Talmud offers no cure for this grievous condition. No cure, that is, except for one. Be like Torah scholars. That is, devote your life to thinking deeply and arguing fiercely and passionately and candidly about the things that truly matter. Never shut anyone down. Engage, even or especially when the conversations you're having are difficult and have no easy resolutions. These days in Israel, where I was born, we're having just such an argument. It's a very painful one, driving hundreds of thousands of Israelis to the streets each week and tearing families and friendships apart. So as Israel's 75th Independence Day is next week, and in the spirit of today's page of Talmud, my co-hosts on the Unorthodox podcast, Stephanie Butnick and Mark Oppenheimer, join me for an intense, but I hope clarifying, conversation about what's going on in Israel, about the origins of Zionism, and about how to have truly and deeply Jewish disagreements. I hope you find it meaningful. And if you like it, you might want to check out our brand new book, Zionism, The Tablet Guide. It's edited by me, and it includes not only a collection of Zionism's foundational texts, including an amazing short story by Herzl himself, but also reflections on Jewish history and thought from some of the most brilliant writers of our generation, including Bernard-Henri Lévy, Dara Horn, Howard Jacobson, and Shimon Peres in the last interview he gave just a couple of weeks before his death. Go to tabletmagstore.com to reserve your copy. And here is our discussion. Leo, where have you been? I returned to the motherland, to Israel, to uh, renew my anxious affiliations. 
Look, a lot of listeners have been writing to us for about 15 weeks now, which is when the mass protests in Israel have started and said, you guys have not said a word about this. What's going on? And I wrote to some privately and I said to to you guys, and I think at some point also on the air, I don't want to just talk about it because this seems different and it seems real. And I, I want to have a chance to go and actually talk to people, which is what I did now for about three weeks. I spent, I mean, I've been to Israel several times before during these last couple of months and participated in these protests, reported on them. But this time around, I really did the work. I spent a lot of time with several of the protest leaders. I spent a lot of time with several of the proposed reform leaders and uh, government people, members of Knesset. I talked to a lot of people and a lot of friends. And I got to tell you, um, on the cusp of this, uh, the 75th, uh, Israeli Independence Day, I am feeling deeply troubled because what I saw in Israel was an indication that things have taken a turn from the political to the metaphysical, that people are really no longer talking about the reform or even about Netanyahu's government or his coalition partners, all of which are you know perfectly reasonable topics for discussion. But I think what they're really talking about, and, and a bunch of people I talked to completely agreed with me, is what kind of Israel they want to see. And in a really weird way, they're having a discussion that Zionism, the miraculous liberation movement that returned us to our indigenous homeland a hundred or so years ago, have been kind of grappling with from day one. And this is going to be a, a huge oversimplification, but for the sake of this argument, I think each one of the camps wants a totally different thing. One wants a state for the Jews and the other wants a Jewish state. One wants a state in which Judaism's long tail is just this, you know, almost addendum to the values and practices and traditions and mores of normal Western countries. And the other wants kind of exactly the opposite. And it's not that compromises aren't possible on a practical sense. And it's not about, as some lazy analyses would have it, about a Jewish state and a democratic state being somehow incompatible, which is totally not the case. It's just two very different visions of what Israel should be. And when you start talking to people, well, you know, are you willing to compromise here, there, or the other? They say, yeah, but that's actually not the state that I want, not the state that I fought for, not the state I thought I was living in. And it doesn't necessarily translate to left versus right, and it doesn't necessarily translate to Mizrahi Jews versus Ashkenazi Jews, or even religious versus secular. It really is, you know, one vision that looks at Israel as the goal being we fought for so long, so hard, just to be a normal people, just so Jews could live like all other people, meaning in a nice Western democracy that values its IPOs and its Netflix shows and its quality of life and its security. And, you know, yeah, the the symbols of the state happen to be Jewish, but that's just almost like the core. And the other people saying, look, our Jewish state could completely contain democracy and we're not talking for a second about some kind of theocratic, religious, Iran-like thing. But we do want a state that is deeply and inherently interested in exploring new and creative ways of, of living Jewish lives, not of just emulating everyone else the tensions are running higher than I've ever seen them run. I've had friends I've known since I was eight or nine years old speak with such force and with tears in, in ways that really I've never seen them do before. And I don't know how this is going to get resolved except for 
the fact that Israelis are finally having this discussion that, again, you know, Herzl himself began maybe when when he pondered whether the Jewish state should be in Africa as the British government at the time proposed or whether it was only permissible as part of a sort of a messianic return to the much too promised land. So I thought I'd ask how you guys felt about this. Well, that's really depressing because that's like that's that you're basically saying it's not about reforms. It's not about the judicial branches, blah, blah, blah. I mean, look, some of us go to friendlies and some of us get tear gas. No, no, but 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 I think what you're basically saying, this is bigger than what it seems to be about from the outside, which is that there is a specific reform that's been proposed. There are people who are very against that. There are people who are against Bibi Netanyahu and they are sort of protesting what they feel is the sort of more religious, more right wing creep. But you're actually saying this is something bigger, like this is sort of a collision course. Was this always going to happen then? What it always seems to be the tension that I've picked up on and what people, you know, my relatives there say is that like there are the people who go to the army and work and do all these things. And then there are the people who don't, right? Like there are these sort of Haredi population, which is growing ever faster, who don't, you know, put their lives on the line for the country, don't necessarily contribute to the economy. And I feel like those undercurrents of deep, deep tensions and resentments, I feel like on both sides, right? It comes up every few years when it's like, should things be open on Shabbat? Or like, should the buses run on Shabbat? Like, I feel like it's- That's exactly right. We as Americans don't understand. Like, we can't understand that, that even being a conversation that we're having, because it's so, so foreign in a way that like, a lot of these fights are between Jews who want modern- lifestyles and Jews who sort of are pulling away from that? Is that an oversimplification? Not really. I mean, it's it's kind of, I think it kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, so look, you know, a bunch of people I talked to said, okay, look, a lot of the protests are saying we are so sickened by the fact that Haredi Jews don't serve in the army and because they don't work, they don't pay taxes. And in fact, a lot of the demonstrations have focused on you know, going into Haredi neighborhoods and sort of saying, hey, man, time's up. It's time for you to join. And then people I talk to from the other side say, right. But when we say, okay, well, we're actually really willing to consider this. But, you know, for us to be in the army, we're going to need things like a different level of kashrut in the kitchen or, you know, some different rethinking of the shared public spaces between men and women. When we say that, then the very same people who say, we demand that you join the army say, what? So now you want to make our army into some kind of theocratic nightmare handmaid's tale scenario? And what I heard from a lot of people from from that side, from the supposed religious side, is basically an argument like, look, you don't really want us serving in the army or working as we are. You just want us to not be religious anymore. You want us to live the same way you live because for you, any person who wants a space that is gender segregated, for example, is some kind of benighted creep. And this is really at the heart of so much of it. For example, has been a lawsuit recently, a private college, no state funding whatsoever, coming and saying, okay, well, you know, we cater to the Haredi population. We think it's really important because a lot of Israelis are demanding that, you know, Haredi learn more kind of like core curriculum type of skill set, STEM, English, et cetera. That's what we want to do, but we want to do it in a way that respects the customs and mores of this community. We want to do it in a gender segregated way. 
And a few organizations sued the college and said, no, you can't do it because separate is never equal. And the court largely sided with them, which basically means, right, then you can't have your way of life in this Western democracy that the protesters are imagining. You can't even have the liberty to decide for yourself that that's what you want. And the protesters on their end saying, correct, because your values are actually not compatible with the Western democracy that we fought so hard for. And it's really kind of interesting and difficult because I can't point to any one side and say, oh, a disaster, oh, total victory. On some very deep level, Liel, and I've read your writing on this and I take it very, very seriously. One of the places where people are very sympathetic to what I'll call the right here, the religious side here, which is, again, those terms are not perfect, but you'll let me have them always says, but we don't want a theocracy, right? We're fine with democracy. If that's the case, then there's a country that actually honors those kinds of exceptions and carve-outs very well and doesn't make highly religious people with these kinds of objections serve in the military so long as they kind of, you know, plead their case in the right way and that lets them take their kids out of traditional schools, basically by and large, you know, with some fighting around the edges. Uh, and it's the United States, right, where you can be Amish and basically lived in a totally hermetically sealed community where the Satmars, despite occasional skirmishes with the government or the New York Times, basically educate their children how they want to, where there are whole towns in the South that, despite Supreme Court rulings to the contrary, have Christian prayer before every football game because they there's so much power devolved to the state and local communities. And the reality is we have a, we have a pretty robust compromise where you can be Satmar or Amish or fundamentalist Mormon. And frankly, with rare exceptions, the government doesn't come for you. But then the government, you know, also creates massive secularized spaces for the majority of people who are not particularly religious. And it all works fine. What religious Zionists of a particular stripe want is something more Jewish out of the government of Israel. In other words, they don't they're because they have the carve-outs they want right now for military service and things like that. So just coming at it from that side, right? And I, I grant you that the secularists, what they might want is to exterminate or extirpate religion. But the religionists want the government to do something more Jewish than just let them be. And See, I guess my question, and my question is, what? What do they want that's more, they, you know, that is that makes it a more Jewish place on the governmental level, more woven into society, aside from the holidays and, you know, you have different days when everything shuts down. But my sense is that they want something different out of the Tel Aviv secularists too. Mark, it's an amazing, amazing question. In, in fact, it's, it's the only question that matters. Uh, and and I, I, I'm going to answer it, but I'm going to start with a kind of a weird almost historical observation, which is if you study, I mean, even if you just read the Wikipedia entry about the birth of Zionism, you would notice the supremely interesting fact that all these founding fathers of the movement could not, for the freaking life of them, agree on what it is that the state that they were so desperately trying to found is going to be like. Some you, said these were Jews. You were saying be, these were Jews? Oh, no, but these were <laughs> Jews like to, to the extreme, right? Some said this will be a Marxist heaven where we will redeem the land through work. Some said, no, this would be a normal Vienna-like, you know, kind right. of it'll be It'll be a salon. On, it'll be a, a Viennese, Viennese salon where you a can Viennese get analysis table. in the right. afternoon. And, Others said, yeah. no, it's a military stronghold where we will be right. strong. And the religious people said, no, it has to be religious. And all these people miraculously, and Stephanie, this is counter your, your, your argument, all these people miraculously had absolutely no problem, for the most part, 
getting together, working together, and and pursuing what they perceived correctly was their goal, which is the establishment of the state, kind of agreeing that the precise nature of the state would be figured out at some later date. My feeling, increasingly, is that the glue that actually brought them together was the fact that Zionism wasn't really new at all, and not, as we like to think, a kind of national 19th century movement to return the Jews to their homeland. Because look, if you ask Italians today, uh, 180 whatever years after the Resurgimento, the, the bringing together unification of modern Italy, how many of them still define themselves as Garibaldis, right? After Garibaldi, they would look at you like you fell from Mars. Like the question would be incoherent. Uh, and here we are 75 years after an independent, robust Jewish state has been accomplished, and we still define ourselves in the terms of the movement that brought us there is Zionism. So the question is, what do these people want? And I would answer what these people want is a Jewish state that allows a lot of space and exploration for Jewish culture in all its myriad amazing forms to grow. And the problem is, and it's a very real problem, and I say this with pain, but also understanding for the other side, uh, these people then are sitting and watching the the realpolitik of the country, and they're saying, sure, we may have exemption from army service for Haredis, etc., but we have about a third of the population that desperately wants for public transportation to operate on Shabbat, desperately wants stores to be open on Shabbat, that doesn't think it is ever okay to have events in private or public spaces that are gender segregated. And that actually makes us feel kind of weirdly unsafe to experience and explore Judaism in the one state whose sole goal, and this is the really important part, right? Whose entire essence is our return to our promised land where we get to kind of be reborn as a people. It's interesting, and I don't mean to be snarky about this. It's interesting that you're not landing on specifics except their feelings. It always sounds to me like there's something snowflakey about the Haredi position here, which is, yes, we might be allowed to do all these things, but we, we feel maligned for doing them. Well, that that is democracy. That's exactly what it would look like in a democratic state that allowed for expressions of Haredi Judaism as well as secularism, as well as a lot of things in between. And I say this as someone who has a cousin who went there to try to help found majority conservative Judaism there in the late 60s and is still living there with his 30 grandchildren, right? What it looks like is everybody feels maligned. They don't feel comfortable. They don't feel like the state is behind them. The state isn't behind them. The state is in some ways neutral to which expression wins out. So part of it is say, well, look, you get out of military service, you get your study, your your yeshivot, your yeshivas, you get your stipends. At a certain point, you have to say, this is pretty much as good as it gets as a lifetime of stipends and study. And that that may be what the compromise looks like. And by the way, I'm you're right. I'm, at the moment, I'm letting some of the secularists off the hook who might want to go into their rooms and say, in your private homes, you can't gender segregate. And there may be unreasonable incursions on that side too. But it may be that this is what it looks like. And it may also be that you don't get to not hear motors on Saturday. That That's a little bit unreasonable, actually. There are places in the world you can move to to not hear motors on Saturday, but probably a densely populated, tiny country. And it's Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah, is is not one of them, right? But the other thing I'll say is, so, so again, I would be arguing to say, it seems to me things have been working out pretty well for both sides, leaving aside the questions of whether it's working out for Arab citizens, Druze citizens, uh, you know, guest workers, et cetera. For the Jewish communities, which is our conversation, I'd say like, shut up and go home. This This may be as good as it gets. The other thing I'll say is that as a student of Christian history, um, I have a, you know, my expertise to the extent I have it is in what does it look like when you found a country 
or, or the United States states on Christian principles. Remember that Massachusetts and Connecticut had established Christian churches, state churches, long after the United States abolished it. A lot of our states still gave money to the congregational churches and said, this is the official church of the state. You're talking about friendlies again, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> When you study Christian history, whether it's the, the nation states of Europe or the American experiment, you realize the last thing you want to do is actually have a state religion because then it becomes corrupt, moribund, deadening, and people flee from it. You know who has state religions? Scandinavia. The Lutheran church is still the estate religion technically of Denmark and Sweden, and nobody goes to church. The Church of England is the church, the official church of the United Kingdom. And as a result, nobody goes. If you want really, really, really robust Judaism, what you want is a state that does not try to be the engine of the Judaism, but rather just kind of protects your boundaries and lets you do it in your homes, in your kahilas, in your shuls. So it, I, ironically, what the Haredi Jews of Israel have been given is the greatest gift in the world, which is a largely secular government that they can fight against and be mad at and that protects them. And that's actually how you build robust religiosity, which is why the United States is still more religious than most of, say, Northern Europe. I have a question. Uh, I, th I think that's very, very beautifully put, and, and it, it sort of instigates me to, to ask the following question. What would you say, and this is, you know, one of those Robert Scaramucci, deceptively simple questions that hopefully would have some kind of- Buddha-like you know, koan, Zen koans. What is, what, is, what is the point uh, of, of Israel? Ooh. Why does it exist? Uh, well, as I argued in my- As you said, piece, there's a lot of- Zionism lot of for places, refugees. Yeah. There's a lot of places for Jews to be safe and, you know- Yeah, no, I think-, I think Upstate New York. Well, I, I actually think the point of it is- a place where we know Jews will always be safe. I actually think the point of it is, as I've argued, Zionism for refugees. And, and by the way, a, an ancillary benefit of that will be that it will allow for manifold expressions of Judaism to grow and flourish within its borders as it has. The, the mistake is wanting the government to have a hand in that, to try to co-opt the state to your religious project because states are very bad at religion. They make it worse. The last thing you want is a minister of Judaism in Israel. Stephanie Bethnick? Nothing to make religion less cool than like instituting it as policy. No, right. I think it's always seemed like there is almost this like a compromise is sort of what it, I think it might actually be a compromise, right? Like this idea that like you have the Knesset, but then there's also the rabbinate. Like I don't quite understand like the marriages in Israel are very weird because you have to go through this like ultra religious rabbinate when most of the people or some of the people, at least, a lot of the people are secular. So I feel like there have been, maybe it's not an uneasy, like, coexistence. Maybe that's, until we had this conversation, I hadn't thought that this was sort of like, kind of the point, maybe, or like, this was a, not a feature, not a bug. Like, this was sort of the beauty and the, the tension of this, that there would be different types of people living together. There would be different types of sort of Jewish expression at the same time. I mean, I just, I guess... My question is, I go back to my first thing that I said, which is like, this is really freaking depressing. This makes me sad, right? This makes me sad to think that Israel, which is a place that is for so many of us, this safe haven, this haven of, I don't know what exactly, but like, it's sort of what you said, like this idea that, I don't, one of you said this, both of you said this, that like Jews would be safe there. And so this idea, first of all, nothing more Jewish than like Jewish infighting, making <laughs> the place that we were all supposed, like this beautiful place that we returned to almost just full of drama and conflagration. But um, 
I don't know. This makes this all makes me sad. Is that weird? And I think that so, that's what so a lot me, of people so feel because you... wait, no, this makes me sad because I think what we a lot of us feel is this deep attachment to Israel, even if we're not like don't know so much about like there is this weightedness that I think we all feel this 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 real connection to this place, even if you've never been there, right? Like. And I think that's why for a lot of Americans watching this who don't quite understand this, who are like, what is this left, right, religious, secular, what actually is going on? I think it's really hard for them. But I think that they feel this sort of like pit in their stomach where they're like, I don't want this. I don't I don't know what happens here. And and I don't know what I as someone on the sidelines can sort of do to understand it. Look, I think I think the pit in the stomach is is merited. Uh, and Mark, look, I agree with you a billion, not a hundred, not a thousand percent, billion, billion percent. A billion D uh, that that government mandated anything, especially religion, is horrible. Uh, but in a weird way, that is actually precisely the point of this judicial reform. I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story that that I still can't get over. Several years back, there was a private private religious school in Israel that practiced kind of heinous segregation between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi girl students in the school, kind of arguing that the Mizrahi girls had like more lax religious practices and adherences, and therefore they should be kept a little bit segregated from the Ashkenazi girls who were really hardcore strict. It was completely revolting. The Supreme Court stepped right in and rightfully said, guys, no, (laughs) you cannot have that kind of segregation. Some of the parents said, okay, we hear you, but this is what we believe. So we choose to take our daughters out of school, which in a private school, in a free country, is precisely what you should be able to do. And we will send them elsewhere. The court, and and what I'm about to say sounds completely fictitious, but alas, is true. The court said, no, uh, because if you do this, then you would have denigrated the court. You would have practiced a kind of loophole around our judgment and you would keep this injustice going. And therefore, if you take your daughters out of school, we will send you, the parents, to prison, which happened. 35 of them went to prison. There are a lot of examples like this, uh, is what I'm saying. But nobody likes examples of high court stupidity more than American liberals like me. Right, like we're living in the age of high court stupidity in the United States. Uh, everyone likes courts when they're on their side and not when they're not. No, but Mark, here's the thing. But, but, but we have a, a constitution. Wait a second. We could debate. Israel doesn't. That's exactly the problem. I, I understand. I understand. So who adjudicates? But the it's a people. Huge issue. Well, I understand. But of course, the the other option is democracy, which for most of Israeli history has been against the Haredim, right? But now all of a sudden, the coalition's not. And so all of a sudden, democracy, you know, 51% seems like the right answer. But the idea that, well, obviously democracy, 51% is a better answer than the courts for the safeguarding of certain fundamental right, quasi-constitutional human rights, is, is of course, entirely cynical because that's something right. that, that the Haredim only decided when they got the, the, the majority coalition. So I don't know exactly how their polity should figure this out, but the idea that somehow it's the courts that are illegitimate versus the democracy strikes me as, as sort of entirely special pleading. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's anyone there is arguing on principle. They're arguing strategically or tactically to try to get what they want. Both sides are, you know, that's exactly right. But, but, but I mean, but, probably but you should are... get a constitution. You know, here's the answer. The answer 
answer is when you get a constitution and then agree on how you're going to divide powers and much as the states does, or in a different way, England, which also doesn't have a written constitution, but has figured out other ways to honor precedent, a mature country, a country that's just farther along in its years, actually figures out solutions to these things. But no, it won't leave the Haredim fully respected because what it is to be... To be in a right, diverse, but, but hold on, but Mark, that's but that's exactly the problem. We have been eluding a constitution, or a constitution has been eluding us for seventy-five years, precisely because no one has wanted to have this very, 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 very painful and almost impossible debate, to which there's only one answer, and which leaves anywhere between a third and half of Israelis feeling like they just lost a country that they fought for and that they want to have. I'm not sure why, if you ended up with some sort of American-style checks and balances, sharing of powers with a constitution, everyone would be, a third or half of the country would feel so. I mean, according to you, the secularists don't need for there to be no Haredim, and the Haredim don't need everyone to be Haredi. They They actually do have compromise in their soul. So why can't they get there? Because compromise has worked very well for us, and I believe it would work very well for us again. But to do it, we have to go through this discussion that we're having now. Look, Mark, I, I think you're you're completely right. And, and and these are issues that, you know, Ben-Gurion dealt with and Begin and Robin, like every single Israeli leader tried Ben-Gurion to kind of imagine. Ben-Gurion at the airport dealt with this. Uh, as as he was standing in line <laughs> Waiting for, for his bags, fighting at the baggage Was claim. the airport named something? Was it like JFK Lod, used to be Idlewild? After the, city, after the city it was in, Lod. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> it, it was called LaGuardia. LaGuardia. Uh, La, LaGuardia. Yeah. It's um, a little wild. You know, it's, <laughs> it's wild. amazing. Um, the, the difficulty here is that when you start having this discussion, the question that you're really asking is the question I just asked you, which is what kind of country do you want? My answer to that would be, to me, it's not just about the safety and, and well-being of Jews. It's not just a safe haven. It is very much the manifestation of our millennia uh, old messianic hope of returning uh, to our to our indigenous homeland uh, and practicing and building a, a Jewish sovereign state that allows us to explore and get closer to the vision of the prophets of Israel. And these disagreements uh, are with us from time immemorial, which in a very awkward segue, I would say uh, is why we here uh, at Tablet Magazine uh, decided that rather than indulging and engaging in this kind of political knife fighting, name calling, which not only is not helpful, but honestly, like I'm not feeling it. Look, I'm I'm the first one to jump into a good knife fight, but I see the merit and the pain and the frustration and the hopes of both sides here. And I think the best thing that we could do right now um, is to go back and actually study and educate ourselves about about the discussions we're really having, which means really understanding Zionism and studying its core questions, its dilemmas, uh, and its and its key texts. Because honestly, these questions, these, these century-old questions are precisely the questions being debated in the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Haifa and Netanya right now. Look, I, I hear I hear all of that. You know, the 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 debate goes on and and Israel does have to decide in the way that the United States decided with some founding documents, what is it that we really want. I think what I would caution the people who have fantasies of sort of really robust religiosity as prescribed or safeguarded by the state to think about 
is what it would mean for the Satmars in New York City, just as a thought experiment, if they controlled the mayor's office and the city council. I actually think that wouldn't be good for them. You know, I don't think it would be good for them to be on the hook for the policing and the sanitation and all that. In fact, it would, it would, if nothing else, dilute their own community's sense of Torah study and religiosity and separateness. Among other things, it would make them much more secular. And one of the interesting ironies about what's going on there is, I guess I would say to both sides, be careful what you wish for. That should be Israel's new state motto. Be you careful. wanted a Jewish state. <laughs> be careful what you wish for. <laughs> This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And get your Take One merch, t-shirts, mugs, and other great stuff at tabletstudios.com. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Robert Scarmucha, and Mark Oppenheimer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at takeone.fiomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic. <laughs>